Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Tuesday, November the 28th, 2023. Uh, earlier this year, at the beginning of August, I had my old friend Pete Weiner on the show. Uh, he's become one of the leading moral critics, I think, of Trump and Trumpism. And back on August the 9th in our conversation, he talked about something he called a moral moment. For him, um, the 2024 election, he believed, may present America with its greatest moral moment since the Civil War, a uh, question of who one should vote for. A lot of it bound up with you-know-who. Pete, um, over the last three months, has become even more prolific as a writer, commentator. Uh, he's had two pieces recently that in themselves have attracted a great deal of news. The first was in The Atlantic, uh, I think a couple of weeks ago, uh, asking, uh, have you listened lately to what Trump is saying? Uh, and uh, he says he is becoming, he, Trump is becoming frighteningly clear about what he wants. And then another interesting op-ed in the New York Times about Republicans choosing nihilism. Uh, Pete Weiner, of course, has a particular credibility because he's a lifelong Republican. I'm not sure if he's still in the party, but he was. He worked in several Republican administrations, and he's a self-styled conservative. Uh, he's joining us, as always, from his home in McLean, Virginia. Pete, has much changed since we last talked at the beginning of August? Uh, is America still facing its moral moment, or is that moral moment even more obvious? Yeah, I think it's the latter, uh, Andrew. It's uh, the moral moment, I think, is more more obvious. I think the, the moment is graver. Uh, the threat is, uh, is more significant. Uh, and I think uh, who Donald Trump is, and I think his descent into madness is becoming uh, harder and harder to deny. It's, uh, I think it's been on display for, for a while now, but um, it's so completely unvarnished and unmitigated. Um, so, you know, uh, we face a huge, huge election coming up. And I will say that if the country decides uh, to vote for Donald Trump and make him president again, it's not like we can't say we haven't been warned or that we don't know what we're going to be getting. Or you've certainly been warning us. Um, your Atlantic piece, and I think it's really, I mean, everything you write, Pete, is essential, but this is particularly essential. You begin with a reference to Rwanda. Why, why did you choose to, to begin this very powerful essay on Rwanda? Yeah, it was because uh, Donald Trump had given a speech on Veterans Day uh, in which he referred to his, uh, his critics as vermin. Um, and that was part of a escalation in his dehumanizing rhetoric. And dehumanizing rhetoric is not, is not new. Uh, it's happened throughout history. In fact, it's not an uncommon trait at all uh, with authoritarian or totalitarian governments, fascistic governments. Um, and so what a lot of the people who lead these malicious and, and malevolent movements do is that they dehumanize uh, their, their critics and their opponents. Uh, they do that for themselves, but they do it primarily for their supporters uh, because they're laying the groundwork uh, to allow them to do whatever is necessary, or whatever they deem to be necessary, um, to get their way in one of the uh, 
ways that that happens historically is to dehumanize other people. Um, and that allows them to uh, commit um, acts uh, and take steps that normally uh, would, would, would be resisted and restrained. Seems to be the old story of the, the frog and that pot of boiling water in right. the sense that we're slipping and sliding into normalizing the kind of hate right. which Trump speaks about whenever it seems he, he makes a political speech or tweets or X's or whatever else he does. And that's what happened in Rwanda. And that's your reference is that after a while, that hatred becomes normalized. It just becomes a central part of the political discourse. Do you think that's happening in America? It's, it's as if, you know, whatever he says, it doesn't even make news. Right. Yeah, I think for sure it's happening. A absolutely. Uh, I mean, in a way, what you just said, I, I, I suppose, underscores it, which is he says things that in the pre-Trump era, if any politician had said anything remotely close to what Trump says, it would have been viewed as scandalous. And uh, and there would have been an uproar, including in the uproar of the, of the party of, of a person that said it. Now it's so commonplace. And it's, in fact, it's not even simply that it's accepted by Trump supporters, but they relish it. It energizes them. It gives them a kind of psychic, psychic satisfaction. And, you know, as you said, uh, in Rwanda, uh, that this happened between the, the Tutsis and the Hutus, and, and uh, there was this effort to, um, to dehumanize the other side. And that created um, the conditions that allowed for for genocide, uh, extraordinary uh, mass killings that happened within 100 days. Now, I'm not predicting that if Trump is president, we're going to have Rwandan-like genocide in the United States. What I'm saying is that he's using that playbook. And the fact that so many of his supporters uh, are embracing what he's saying uh, and they take delight in it, uh, that in and of itself is a grave, grave uh, warning about 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 where we, where where we are. Your article had a great deal of impact. Seems as if even Donald Trump may have read it. Um, he certainly uh, lashed out, if that's the right word, at uh, Lauren uh, Powell Jobs, who supports, I think, in part owns the Atlantic, suggesting that. Old Steve Jobs would be turning in his grave if she, if he knew that his widow was supporting such such a left wing, radical um, uh, publication. So left wing and radical, it allows Christian conservatives like Pete Weiner to write for them. It's not clear whether he responded specifically to your piece, although it seems as if he might. Um, I guess you took that. You you must have been rather amused, uh, impressed that that you, you pricked his skin, that's something you said in that piece really angered him. Yeah, you know, uh, in the 1930s at the Democratic Convention, uh, the Democrats uh, unfurled a banner uh, for FDR that said, we love you for the enemies you've made. And uh, if Donald Trump uh, considers me one of his enemies, um, then I take that as, uh, as a certain badge of honor. Uh, it, because, um, you know, I've been so forthcoming um, such a, I would say, a fierce critic of his, and for for, for a long, long, uh, long, long time. So, look, I understand why he would lash out at me, um, and um, um, and especially for somebody who, with his with his psychological 
with a psychological uh, makeup. Um, but, uh, you know, in the end, what I'm trying to do is I'm, I'm trying to state the case as honestly as I can. I, I'm trying to, you know, bang the pots and pans, as they say, um, trying to warn people about what this moment means and what Trump would would mean. And um, hopefully to persuade some people and hopefully to energize other people in opposition uh, to him. As you said, I, I had been a lifelong Republican up until 20, 2016, worked in three Republican administrations and still consider myself in many respects conservative. Um, and I think that there is a, an argument uh, from the conservative perspective against Trump. Uh, but fund most fundamentally, I think there's an argument uh, from the perspective of, of human decency uh, against Trump. And in my case, also as a, as a person of the Christian faith um, to, uh, to, to speak out at this, uh, this moment. Others obviously hold a different view than I do, um, but I have the opportunity to make my case and I try and do it as honestly as I can. And, and, uh, and then you just uh, let things unfold from there. We're speaking with my old friend, Peter Weiner, perhaps uh, the most powerful and acute of critics of both Donald Trump and Trumpism in America, certainly from the conservative camp. Pete, you mentioned um, your, your, your Christian identity, and uh, we, you and I have talked about that in, in detail, both on and offline. Right. You seem to be suggesting in, in some of your work that anyone who votes for Trump is not a Christian. Is that a vulgarization of what you're arguing? I don't think it's a vulgarization. I think it probably goes a little bit further than I would. I think that people who are who are Christians could support Trump. Uh, I just think that if they are doing that, uh, that they are in some important respects betraying the Lord they they they, they claim to love and to and to serve. I think they're making a grave error uh, in in doing that. I I don't feel comfortable in a position of saying that you know if you if you support Trump you're not a Christian, I think that's a complicated question, and it's, it's not really for you to say anyway. Who is? Yeah, ex exactly. You know, the, the the motivations of the human heart, our own motivations, and are 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 difficult enough for us to to discern. It's 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 triply so for for other people. I do think that we are at a at a stage, and I, I'm actually have been reluctant for reasons I'm happy to go into. Um, to, to make that claim. But I think the evidence is so overwhelming at this point in terms of who Trump is, what he said, what he's done. The catalog of, of depravity uh, is so long that for a, uh, for, for a Christian uh, to uh, defend him uh, at this stage means that something has gone deeply, deeply wrong. And I think as a person of the Christian faith, I feel like it's important to say that in part because I think that uh, this is, as a friend of mine, pastor uh, said to me, uh, there's a generational catastrophe that's happening among younger people in particular as they watch this moral freak show with a lot of people who are fundamentalists and evangelical Christians uh, aligning uh, themselves behind the person who's probably the, the greatest uh, embodiment of the antithesis of, of the teachings of Jesus and, and, and the ethics of Jesus uh, that we've seen in American politics, maybe ever, but in a long, at least in a long, long time. You use this term generational catastrophe. What do you mean? Well, I think what's what's happening, particularly about, for younger people, is that the evangelical, white evangelical movement has so associated itself with, with Donald Trump 
over these years. And it's such a morally incomprehensible and unjustifiable position in my estimation. I think in the estimation of a lot of people, including younger, especially younger people, that they think, well, this is this is just a joke. This is a this is a moral freak show. This is a fraud. These people who have talked about the importance of integrity and moral character, particularly, I should say, during the Clinton Bill Clinton presidency, when um, a lot of evangelical Christians on an almost daily basis took a figurative Dubai Four upside the head of, of Bill Clinton because of the Monica Lewinsky scandal because of sexual transgressions of Bill Clinton. And they made the argument that e even if the country was doing well by a lot of metrics during the Clinton era, and it was, uh, that Primus Inter Paris was the character and integrity of, of uh, political leaders and that you couldn't compartmentalize. Now, that argument may or may not have been wrong, but that's what they embraced. They were enthusiastic about it. <clears throat> now along comes Trump, who makes Bill Clinton look in many respects like a Boy Scout. And they jettisoned all of those <clears throat> standards, all of those criteria that they once claimed they so deeply believed. And not only jettisoned them, but then they go and, and they go further and they embrace Trump and they defend him. <clears throat> and in some respects, they even revere him. Now, that, I think, is just obvious and, and at the point where it's now undeniable. And so when people are watching this and seeing a, a, a religious movement, a, a Christian movement, so align itself with a man of <clears throat> such borderless corruptions, <clears throat> excuse me, they're, they're going to ask questions and they're going to say, look, this, this, is a, this is a scam. You guys aren't serious about this. Your faith is not informing your politics. Your ideology, your politics is completely forming and deforming uh, your, your, your faith. Though that's what uh, my friend meant when, when he talked about the generational catastrophe. Young people are leaving the church or staying away from the church um, in part, not in whole for sure, but in part because of, of what's uh, unfolding culturally and politically. Your two essays and all your work is often informed by conversations you have with Republicans uh, who still remain loyal to Trump. Um, one headline um, about uh, you as, and I'm quoting an ex-Bush speechwriter, suggests that Trump's Christian supporters are, quote unquote, betraying the, the Lord. Um, I'm not, again, sure what exactly betraying the Lord means, but is there any truth to that headline, Pete? Yeah, I, I I think so. I um, you know that was really the the last uh, paragraph of that Atlantic essay. Uh, most of the essay was was on Trump, uh, what he was saying, why he was a concern, and, and about the Republican Party. But the last few paragraphs, I home in on on the Christian uh, on the Christian movement. Um, I, I did did that for a couple of reasons. One is because the uh, evangelical movement is really the core support for for Trump and the Republican Party right now. So it has pretty profound political manifestations and ramifications. But the other, as I said, was because as a, as a person of the Christian faith, uh, I just feel like it's it's important to name this uh, and to be and to be uh, honest about it. Uh, I will say that I, I have friends um, who, who, who are followers of Jesus. Um, who were deeply upset with the position that I've that I've taken, uh, particularly in terms of calling Christians out. Their argument is that this is essentially airing dirty laundry, that I'm exaggerating the damage that's being done, and that I'm 
hurting the faith because I'm discrediting the faith by naming what's what's going on. I obviously have a profoundly different interpretation of that, but um, but I hear from from those folks. I want to listen to them. I I don't want this moment, as intense as it is, to uh, break apart personal relationships and friendships. It's put strains on on them. Um, mine in some cases, but many others too. And I've, I've tried to navigate that as well as I can, um, but it's it's got its challenges. Have you had conversations with church people? I mean, mm -hmm. uh, uh, people in the church itself, has, be, has there been any response, any official response within Shall we say official Christianity? I mean, speaking of official Christianity in America is a little ambitious, but yeah, I mean, we're not talking about a papacy here, but right. How 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 has the conventional church and church people responded to this argument that you you made in the Atlantic? You know, it's 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 a really interesting uh, question, uh, and it's multi layered in its in its response. I have had conversations with. With pastors and theologians and congregational people in, in churches that I've attended uh, and other churches, and let me disaggregate the responses that that, that I've gotten from people uh, who profess to be Christians who are strong Trump supporters, uh, and I'm happy to 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 dilate on this um, more. But I think there are a series of rationalizations, justifications that that they've uh, embraced in order to uh, mitigate uh, the, uh, um, the cognitive dissonance that, that is created by pe people of moral beliefs uh, embracing a person who, who is morally depraved. Uh, that creates obvious tensions. And so the question is, how, how do people avoid that? And, and there's a whole series of things that I've, that I've noticed. But <clears throat> the main criticism of me and their, their main argument is that the Democratic Party, Joe Biden, the American left, is a fearsome threat um, to almost all that they love and cherish, a fearsome threat to the Republic, the American Republic. And they have to be defeated at all costs. And this is therefore is an existential moment. Uh, it's a kind of catastrophizing of the moment in my, in my estimation. And they would argue in a basically that the ends justify the means, uh, that uh, that the, the approach that Trump takes and the things that he says are by normal standards beyond the pale, perhaps. But in this particular moment, it's what's needed. Uh, so that's that's their argument. Then there <clears throat> there are a number of people, a lot of people, in fact, that I am in touch with who are horrified by Trump. Um, these include pastors and theologians, um, but they don't speak out um, from the from the pulpit or they don't speak out publicly for reasons that I entirely understand. Uh, they've never done that. They view the, the church and their mission and their job uh, as pastors is to attend to the spiritual life uh, and and to, uh, you know, uh, read and discuss uh, and preach on the Bible. And that if they uh, weave in and bring in politics, that's simply going to divide the congregation. And a simple way to think about it is, you know, if, if you have a congregation that's half 
Trump supporters or leaning toward Trump and a pastor says something from the pulpit that's critical uh, of Trump, then the next week when he speaks on Matthew 5 or Philippians 2, they're just going to tune him out. So I think these people feel like, look, I, I, I'm a pastor. I'm not a politician or a political strategist, and I don't want to divide our congregation more than it is. I, I, I want to try and, and preach and teach and, if anything, be a healing force. So they stay quiet. And again, I understand that. Here's the problem, and I've posed this to a number of, of, uh, of people, including prominent Christians, which is at what point are the circumstances such that you're morally compelled to speak out with your moral authority? And I've used it as an example uh, slavery and segregation and, and ask people, are you glad that there were prominent people of the Christian faith who spoke out? Uh, against segregation and against slavery. After all, those were political moments too. And most people say yes. Uh, and a more extreme example would be Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, during, during with a German confessional church, uh, which was a smaller kind of remnant within Germany that spoke out about what was going going on. So there are historical examples in which you say, yeah, the church and Christian people of good conscience need to speak out because of the nature of the moment. Um, and so then the question is, what about America in 2023, 2024 with Donald Trump? Is that moment a time when you should speak out? And that's, I think, particularly a, a challenge to these folks because there's so many white evangelical Christians who are Trump supporters who are speaking out, whether you're talking about Eric Metaxas or Franklin Graham or Robert Jeffress or uh, just a number of, of other people. So if you're you know, if you're Andrew Keene and, and you're not familiar with the Christian world, you're just watching this unfold and you've got 10, 15, 20 prominent white evangelicals cheering Trump on and you're not hearing anybody but Pete Wainer and David French and a couple of other people who are Christians speaking out, you would think that that is a person that the vast majority of white evangelical Christians support, especially since around 80 percent of them voted for him. So should christian leaders speak out at this moment um i certainly think that that's a serious question to entertain that's pete rayner's way of saying yes i think that's my interpretation anyway for what it's worth we are speaking with the great pete Wayner, one of the bravest most critical um voices on amongst american conservatives today certainly one of its more most moral voices morality seems to have gone away i want to remind everyone that this High-quality kind of conversation is brought to you by Liberties, a quarterly journal of culture and politics. Excellent new publication dealing with a lot of the same issues that uh, Pete Wayner writes about. Going to run a short ad for Liberties, and then we'll be back to talk to Pete about Trump, the election, and I want to also talk about his take on what's happening amongst progressives in America today. So don't go away, anyone. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties is not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can subscribe to Liberties at libertiesjournal.com. We are speaking with the great Pete Wayner. His last book was The Death of Politics, but he's been very busy since writing all sorts of 
fascinating, powerful critiques of Trump and Trumpism. It's two latest, particularly powerful, one in the Atlantic, which actually even got Trump uh, Xing against the owner of the Atlantic. Another very interesting argument in the New York Times uh, from last week, Republicans have chosen nihilism, and he falls back, if that's the right word, on uh, Alan Bloom's uh, old chestnut, the closing of the American minds, not the first or the last time this book has been brought up to make sense of America. What would, what, what, why is our, our current moment relevant in, in your view, um, Pete, in terms of, of Bloom's uh, arguments about nihilism in closing of the American mind? Yeah, the, the, the book that, that Bloom wrote was just 1987, uh, and it's a very academic book. Bloom was a political philosopher. I bet a bestseller too. It wasn't that yeah. academic. Well, it was it, it, actually it was both. It was academic and a bestseller, which which really made it a rarity. I, I, I think it sold more than a million copies all all uh, all told. But it's it's particularly the middle parts of the book where he where he goes through Nietzsche uh, and uh, and a whole series of of uh, continental philosophers. Um, and the uh, I think it was Harper Collins that published it. I mean, they thought it would sell you know five or ten thousand thousand copies. The reason that I that I mentioned the Bloom book was because it had an electric effect on conservatives in the late eighties, early nineties. Bloom's critique uh, it was it was a complicated one, but to simplify things a bit, was that the great threat to America was uh, nihilism, relativism, moral relativism. And he starts out by talking about the students that that he would have in his class, and they would all say that basically that there was no truth. Uh, truth was was a you know Nietzsche had the term perspectivism, which meant that, that whatever your particular perspective was, that's what determined what what truth you 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 embraced. And Bloom was very very worried about that because he believed in objective truth, objective moral order. Um, now, in the case of Bloom, the threat he said, and I think that, that there was some merit to, to, to this uh, was that these were deep currents of thought that arose from the American left, deconstructionism, movements within, within the academy uh, that had been unfolding over, over many decades. Uh, so Bloom's warning was relativism was a threat not just to the academy but to the country, that it really emanated from the new so-called new left and that it, people needed to stand up against it. And conservatives at that point embraced the idea of objective truth, were very wary about, about nihilism and, and uh, subjectivism. And uh, so they rallied around it and he became a kind of rock star, weirdly enough, uh, on, on the American right. My point in writing the essay was in <clears throat> excavating what Bloom said we now have a situation in which the chief propagators of uh, nihilism and subjectivism, relativism, is not the, the American left, but the American right. And I think we see that in all sorts of ways. So there's a tragic irony uh, that, uh, that has unfolded. And I know many people uh, who, who embraced Bloom and the Bloom thesis um, at, the, uh, at the time and to see how this has now been inverted and and it's now um, those movements that he warned about have been embraced most especially on the American right um, is, uh, is 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 worth noting and for, for some of us there's a certain painfulness to 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 recognizing that 
The latest book, uh, best-selling book, which plays on the the Bloom uh, title is The Cancelling of the American Mind by Greg uh, Lukianoff and Ricky Schlott. They were both on the show recently. <laughs> they argue that intolerance in America is so troubling. It's it's alike uh, the uh, the McCarthyite period. They're critical both of the left and the right, but I think particularly the left. What what do you make of debates on the left, uh, particularly when it comes to cancellation culture? It, is this an intellectual crisis, perhaps, in parallel with the one you've written so extensively about on the right, or are they connected? Well, I, I, that's a nice way of putting it. I think it is an intellectual crisis. Uh, and I think that it's happening. It, John Roush, a friend of yours. And, and yeah, and you, of you and he wrote a very powerful piece a couple of years ago suggesting that you feared both the extreme right and left, but it was the extreme right that you're more fearful of. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. We, we described it as, a, I think, a pincer movement. Um, and so what's happening on, on the left really worries me, uh, too, both for the reasons that the authors of the book have talked about Jonathan Haidt, uh, the, the esteemed social psychologist at, at New York University, has, has uh, written and talked about this issue as, as well. Uh, it's most pronounced on college and university campuses. Uh, and so if you talk to, to, to professors, even pro liberal professors, it's, it's very obvious that this is a, almost a pervasive fear. Even students, I mean, the degree to which students when you talk to students, self-edit uh, these days, it's it's uh, it's remarkable and it's disturbing and it's doubly disturbing that it, it happens in college campuses because for many of us, uh, colleges and universities, the academy, uh, which which really was a, was a product of the ancient Greek, the idea there would be to be uh, was to be open to to uh, different thoughts, different viewpoints, the clash of of arguments and ideas, and uh, that there was a intellectual freedom, intellectual thought, intellectual rigor, persuasion. And uh, for a complicated set of reasons on the American left, I think they're trying to shut shut down debate. And this has spread, uh, you know, we know from social media, it's spread in some places in journalism, where there's a kind of mob mentality that that, that uh, kicks in. And somebody who says something that is viewed as, as politically incorrect, to use an old phrase, uh, they're canceled. That is, there's this wave of, of, of attack and threats and people are sort of just buried under this avalanche um, and careers are destroyed. People are intimidated from speaking out. So, you know, the left uh, is, is not sinless in, in what's unfolding in, in the country. They have, they have a lot to answer for, too. And I, I do feel as somebody who deeply loves America, uh, that, that we do have an intellectual and a cultural and a moral crisis. Uh, and uh, it's not um, confined to, to uh, either the left or, or the right. I think it's in both. It just manifests itself in different ways. And, and I do think that the, the more immediate threat on the right exceeds what the threat from the left. That doesn't mean that the left isn't a threat. Is the crisis, Pete, it's obviously a spiritual one that goes without saying, and you, you've written extensively throughout your career on this, but is it also a crisis of leadership? I'm not sure if you've seen Ridley Scott's new movie, Napoleon, it's getting a lot of press. An interesting piece in the New York Times by Mark Mizawa, the historian, very distinguished Anglo-American historian at Columbia, 
arguing that Napoleon was once viewed in the 19th century as Hitler. Now he's viewed in, certainly in the, in, in, um, in the Ridley Scott movie, in a, in a Trumpian sense, as a rather pathetic, inarticulate little man. He was always little, of course, physically, but not necessarily morally. Um, and uh, Mizar argues in, in the New York Times piece that we don't believe in leaders anymore. We don't believe in Napoleon's, the great man at the helm of history. Now, I guess for Mizar, that's not necessarily a bad thing, but it's one of the crises that we simply don't believe in great men or perhaps great women. Uh, I want to talk later in this conversation about Nikki Haley, who, who may be a great woman. Um, or, or, or that might be a kind of a Bloomian analysis of our current predicament. Yeah, that's a very intriguing um, way of framing it. I, I think there's something to it. I mean, I'd want to want to consider it more carefully. But my my instinct is that there's something to what you're what you're saying. I, I'd say that there's a broad canopy um, that that uh, is in place, and that's a crisis of authority. And we see that in this country, in the United States. But I think it's it's also true in, in Western Europe and, and other countries as well. But certainly in the United States, if you look at the confidence that people have in institutions, uh, military, police, education, the press, Congress, the presidency, uh, you know, go on and on, the, you've seen a tremendous uh, loss of, of trust uh, almost across the board in those institutions. I think the the one or two, actually the one that's probably does the best these days is the military. But even there, we've we've seen some loss of of, uh, of confidence and trust. And so, the, the great hero, of course, of the military in the Trump regime was Miley. And uh, Trump has actively called for him to be uh, executed. Right. Yeah. Basically said he committed treason. Uh, so that's that's uh, that's right. And so I, I that can be really, really dangerous because if you have a pervasive sense of distrust toward um, all institutions of authority or almost all institutions of authority. And I should add, by the way, you know, medical institutions, we saw that during the pandemic with, with, uh, with, with COVID and, and the vaccine and now the vaccine deniers uh, that, that we see all over the place. And the fact that Tony Fauci has become a kind of a voodoo doll for, for many people in the American right. When that happens, um, you, your capacity to have uh, uh, agreement on a common set of facts and a common reality begins to splinter. And when that happens, it's a kind of epistemological free-for-all. Um, pe people can make up their own facts, their own narratives, and pick and choose which sources of authority they want. So um, in terms of the, the, the great man, great woman, theory in history, I, I think that's probably right. Um, you know, I, I'm not sure that there are many great figures, political or otherwise, that are on the scene right right now. That may be a problem too. But I also am open to the idea that even if a great figure were to appear on the scene, it, it may be that the conditions, cultural and otherwise, are such that that person would that the country wouldn't rally around such a person, that the divisions are so deep and so great that um, a great leader may not get a chance to, in a sense, get lift off um, 
And, um, you know, th there have been a lot of presidents in recent times who have tried to heal the divisions in, in the country because America is so deeply polarized, the most polarized it's been since the Civil War. And, you know, some have tried better than others. And it's always a balancing act when you're when you're a political leader, a president, in, in, in this case, in the United States, because you uh, you're the leader of your party and you, you have to stand for your party, defend your party and energize your party. At the same time, most presidents also try and, and be healing voices and unify the country, at least at key at key moments. Trump, of course, was the great exception to to uh, to that. He had no interest in unifying the country. In fact, um, he, he was driven for, I think, because of his the nature of his um, psychological pathologies to divide the country. So a, a lot of these movements that I think have been problematic have been in motion for, for a number of decades. Uh, and I think that they created the conditions that allowed Donald Trump to rise. But once he took control of the Republican Party, and especially once he was elected president, uh, that was like jet fuel on a lot of these, these, uh, these, these tendencies. So, you know, if, if there was a Lincoln or a, or, or, or a Churchill or a Margaret Thatcher, uh, you know, Gold of My Ear, you name the the person, w would the conditions be such that they would be honored as great leaders? I don't know. And it's last thing I'll say on this is a lot of times these great leaders aren't recognized as great uh, at the time in which they're, they're acting. Often they're seen as deeply controversial figures. Um, you know, in a different realm, Martin Luther King Jr., I think, would fall into that category. He was a very polarizing figure when he was alive uh, for many of us uh, and from Today, he's an almost sainted figure and an apostle of of, uh, of liberation uh, and and uh, articulator of a of a moral uh, of a moral conscience. So a lot of times, and Lincoln, it was true, and Churchill, it was true as well. Of course, as you, as you know better than I, he was he was tossed out uh, uh, as uh, prime minister after World War II, and then he was. It was yeah, you uh, mentioned uh, Margaret Thatcher, of course. Before she came to power, you're absolutely right. Um, no one took her particularly seriously. She seemed rather gauche, inarticulate. She wasn't the Thatcher we knew. She was right. the real Thatcher, and then she became something else. Could there be a woman in the wings um, who could become the American version of Margaret Thatcher? Uh, Paul Krugman has a recent piece criticizing Nikki Haley. Krugman, if, if he's bothered by uh, Nikki Haley, I think that's actually a compliment to her. The, the cop group, uh, the network has endorsed her. It, it, she seems the only figure running now against Trump within the party who has um, a hope, excuse the term, Pete, a hope in hell of, uh, of, uh, of, of, of challenging him. Is there anything to Haley? Have you spent much time with her? Would you back her? I've not spent time with her. I'm familiar enough with her. Uh, and I, I would certainly back her over, over Donald Trump. Well, that goes without saying, but could yeah. you imagine enthusiastically getting behind her? I could imagine getting behind her. I'm not sure enthusiastic. I, like almost every other Republican uh, in positions of political leadership or running for, for public office, they've all been shaped and deformed to some extent by the MAGA movement. And that's true of Nikki Haley, too. Uh, I don't think she is running as authentically as the person she is. And I think if you look at her at her time when she was governor in South Carolina, 
when I thought she was very skillful in handling how they took down, say, the Confederate flag from the state capitol. Um, I think there she was a healing uh, voice and, a, and, and she worked well together. She's very talented politically, I would say, um, clearly of, of, of the, the field of Republicans that are challenging Trump, um, the most talented. Um, you know, I find Chris Christie to be talented in a certain way, but for a variety of reasons, he's obviously not a serious threat to to. Yeah, to I mean, his, his talent is, is something else. I wonder on Haley, for me, the big nightmare would be if um, if Trump asked her to run as as his vice president and she said yes. Is there any possibility of that, do you think? I don't I think, think so. I think if that was the case, they would be, certainly if they ran directly against Biden, they would be pretty hard to beat. Yeah, I the first thing to say is that uh, Trump isn't going to offer it to her and she wouldn't accept until the primaries unfold. And we're going to know. No, I understand that. And we're going to know awfully early whether she has a chance to beat him. I, I think she's got maybe a one in 10 chance. Uh, and that may be generous to beating Trump because I think it's a thoroughly Trumpified, magnified party for reasons I'm, I'm happy to, to dilate on. But so I think her odds of winning are very, very low. Would Trump offer her the vice presidency? I doubt it um, because uh, she challenged him for one thing. And his the nature of who he is uh, is such that that he would probably hold that against her and, and not want her. And in, in addition, he is looking for somebody who is going to, you know, uh, be a great champion of the idea that that uh, the election was stolen, and I don't think she would she would do it. I don't, I'm not even sure that it would be in her political best interest to uh, to to uh, to do it. Now, if Trump were in a position in which he felt like he needed Haley to win the election, would would uh, would he do it uh, potentially? But um, you know that that would be the case for for most presidential nominees. Trump, as always, is in a different different category. So I wouldn't expect that she's going to be on the ticket. If she were on, would she be formidable? Yes, but this election isn't going to be decided by the vice president. It's going to be decided by the people, the vice presidential nominees. It's going to be decided by the top of the tickets. Final question, P. I know you've got to run. Um, is the big issue Trump 2.0? Is it on migration? You you talk in your very powerful Atlantic piece about Trump's remarks on immigrants, about rounding them up, calling them vermin. Is the heart of the storm, if he is elected or indeed during the election, is it going to be about illegal immigration or migrants, whatever you want to call people who aren't in this country legally? That'll be a big issue. Uh, it's got a lot of attraction, a lot of salience in the country right now. And Joe Biden's very, very vulnerable on that. On that Even issue. ironically enough, amongst Hispanics. Yes. Yeah, no, it's it is true that Trump's support right now in the polling among Hispanics is high, particularly for uh, for for Republican. That's definitely an issue. I think the economy is is going if we're talking about public policy issues, condition of the country, yeah, the economy is 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 almost always first. And it will be in this case, too. But um, but but immigration will be an issue, too. But I I do think that this race, uh, assuming it's going to be Biden and Trump, is going to be unusual because I think more than uh, we, we've seen in our lifetime uh, and many, maybe many lifetimes, is that I'm not sure that this is going to be a referendum on the incumbent. I think it it, it will be a, 
uh, a referendum on the challenger. Um, certainly, if the Biden team is smart, that's what they're going to do. They're going to make this uh, a referendum on Trump. Um, if it's on Biden, he's, he's going to have trouble. If you look at the polling, I mean, we can set aside the merits of the case, but he's a very, very weak and very, very vulnerable. But it's going to be issues. about both, Pete. I mean, it's going to be both about Biden and Trump. And, and finally, finally, what about a, what? what is your sense of uh, third parties? I'm sure that many of the third party groups, including the no labels people who we've had on the show, I, I would assume they'd love to have you involved. Do you in any way sympathetic to a third party run here, given how out of touch Biden seems to be. And of course, we've already talked about everything associated with Donald Trump. Yeah, I, uh, not, in, not in this uh, moment in, in time. I'm, I'm sympathetic to the idea of a third party for the reasons you, 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 you would imagine, which is the, the idea that neither of the two, the Republican or Democratic Party embodies uh, the, the, the kind of principles that a lot of Americans would like. Um, and there's a, I think there's a sort of temperamental attraction, maybe we could call it, of a th of a third party a disposition in politics that, that that we could that we could use. But look, right now, a third party candidate is not going to get close to winning the election. All they can do is tip the election potentially to one or the other. And I assume that if a third party candidate ran, it would help Trump and hurt uh, Biden because the you're fishing if you're talking about. Uh, the the, the uh, lakes that you're fishing in, there are many more moderates uh, in the Democratic Party than the Republican Party for a third party independent candidate uh, and and um, and party to draw from. So I, I think it's reasonable to assume it's not dispositive, but it's reasonable to assume that if there's a third party candidate running, a serious third party candidate running, it would hurt Biden and help Trump. And for me, uh, the overwhelming task uh, for for uh, Americans uh, in, the, in this moment is to defeat Trump and not to allow him to become president again, because if he does, I think the damage to this country will be not just profound, but in some respects, maybe irrevocable. He may put us on a path that we really can't recover uh, from, at least for a long, long time.